if you accept praise, then you're acknowledging that you actually deserve that recognition. But if you feel like an imposter, then deep down, you don't feel like you deserve that recognition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. Do you or someone you know feel like they are not worthy of their accomplishments? Do they believe they don't know as much as people think they do? Or feel as though they lack the skills to complete projects given to them, but in the end can complete them? Do you or someone you know sit in fear that at some point they may be found out by their colleagues that they are a fraud? If so, you or someone you know may be suffering from imposter syndrome. Also known as imposter phenomenon, this is the term used to describe a person's psychological feeling of inadequacy and inability to positively internalize their success, therefore feeling like a fraud that can be found out. Research on this issue was first performed by two psychologists in 1978, Suzanne Imes and Pauline Rose Clance. They described it as a phenomenon that affected high-achieving women. Other research will show that it affects those who are part of minority groupings. Both of these are not always the case, as newer research suggests that it can affect anyone in any profession. In higher education, we tend to find that imposter syndrome affects faculty, staff, and students. Faculty may feel the symptoms heighten when they are in a competitive environment striving to obtain funding or tenure. They may begin to retreat from working closely with students attempting to somewhat hide from their duties as a mentor or instructor. Like faculty, if the work culture is fostering a more competitive drive, that may affect staff as well. Some staff may begin to withdraw from job responsibilities or procrastinate. They may even avoid moving on to other roles for fear the new role will ask for more than they can do. Research has shown that it affects students as they are seeking validation of their learning throughout their college experience, particularly graduate and first-generation college students. The effects of a person feeling like they are playing a game of fake it till you make it can be psychologically brutal. This is because they don't believe they have the talent, skills, or capabilities to make it. They can burn themselves out with overworking to meet their internal high expectations. Despite their acknowledgement that others hold them in high regard, sufferers may view it simply as their ability to fool them. This kind of thinking can draw circles around them, binding them into deep feelings of never being good enough or never knowing enough even if their actions and outputs say different. Some may even get so caught up in the illusion that they begin to lose interest in their efforts, which then leads to the want for lower visibility and seeking a way out. Keep in mind that at some point, each person has had a feeling of inadequacy. For professionals, it might be events like starting a new job or role or when developing a newer skill. The difference for those suffering with imposter syndrome is that the feeling doesn't go away. To help alleviate the stress that imposter syndrome can bring, some higher ed institutions have begun developing programs for all three groups to bring awareness to the issue and highlight the sense of belonging because of its strong link to mental health. In the article, The Imposter Phenomenon in Higher Education, Incidents and Impact, author Anna Parkman states, while more empirical research is necessary to fully understand imposter phenomenon, particularly with regard to faculty and staff, there is enough documentation to support the integration of programming on campus and reflection upon how the academy feeds it. 
In the beginning, it probably sounded much like a commercial attempting to sell you a new prescription. So like all good prescription commercials, yes, there are ways to overcome these feelings and thoughts of being a fraud. Keep listening as we get into our conversation about imposter syndrome and move our way into tips that can help ease those symptoms. Then, stay tuned in after our discussion about imposter syndrome as we move into hot topics. Today's chat will be around rubrics for e-learning tools. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Celia Kuchwaitiwa from the Academic Operations Team at ASU's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are Jeanette Senecal, Aaron Kraft. This is a lot to think about, right? Were you as mind blown as I was when I first learned that there was a name for what I personally have felt for so long? Before this podcast, had you heard of imposter syndrome? If so, what did you know? Mind blown. There's so much to unpack here. Well, you've certainly fooled me. I've, for the past three years that I've worked with you uh, weekly, I would never have thought that you uh, were anything but confident and competent at what you're doing. So I bring a great facade. <laughs> Apparently. So <laughs> hire this woman, folks. No, I, I, I've heard of it, and I think the name sort of speaks for itself. I mean, I just assumed what it was. It would, you know, and it's nice to be able to now research deeper into some of the mechanics of it and how it plays out uh, through, the, through the articles that you linked us to. Yeah, I think the emergence of the term has certainly been a lot more prevalent in pop culture in the last few years. And I certainly had heard it from time to time. I would say that I think I didn't know as much about it until a few years ago. But much like you, the whole concept very much resonated. Like, there's a name for this. And I think we even may have alluded to it in a previous episode at one point along the way. So it's been out there. I think it's been a peripheral awareness. What I what is new to me and what was really interesting is a lot of the research that's connected to the higher education environment and particularly how this impacts students. Mm-hmm. They seem to be affected most, at least among the different demographics listed here. And I think maybe some of that's just being young and going into a world that seems maybe daunting, especially with that transition from high school to college. You're you're entering, quote unquote, the real world. And I still roll my eyes when I say that phrase because I think of my parents telling me, you know, someday you'll be in the real world. But (laughs) I think uh, I look back at myself when I first started as an instructional designer and the first time I had to sit in front of a room of faculty introduce myself and start talking about how I'm going to instructional design them into a better future. <laughs> I definitely had a, a, a very nervous moment where I just wanted to run away. Mm-hmm. You know, so the expectations were piled on my shoulders and you could just feel the weight. <laughs> you know, in the interview, I should say that I, 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 I was confident. And then when they hired me, they, they seemed very happy. So <laughs> it seemed like everything until that moment was working out just fine. So I, I can definitely see how this uh, can affect people at all stages, Mm -hmm. from students to uh, working professionals? Yeah, for me personally, I remember the first time I learned about it, I was at a conference, and I happened to join in on a conversation in one of the sessions that was about imposter syndrome. And joining that conversation was the first time I felt comfortable with being able to say, I am not that confident in what I do, and I have these same feelings. And from then on, I realized that it's okay to go back and reflect on what 
put me here or how did I get here and and acknowledge some of those achievements that got me to where I am today. Where I think part of it for me was that I didn't have a path that took me directly to the space I'm in now. And when you talk to, you know, a variety of people who start out knowing exactly where they want to be mm, and go yeah. and, you know, go from point A to point B, where my path looks more like the family circus, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, route of going up and down and around and all over. I think that for me was part of my feeling of, you right. know, those imposter syndrome characters, now, characteristics. I that was in one of the uh, resources that you shared with us that students who come from families where they are the star achiever, where they're the first ones, for example, to to get into higher education or one of the few, mm -hmm. they tend to especially feel the imposter syndrome. Yes. Yeah, it was fascinating. They provide in, in this Parkman article in 2016, which we'll include in the show notes, that positive correlations were documented between this phenomenon and academic success, mm -hmm. anxiety over evaluation, um, neuroticism, achievement orientation and perfectionism, which mm -hmm. is like kind of, uh, it's me in a sentence a little bit there. So I, I, I get think this. all of us in a yeah, sentence. I get yeah. that. I think on the instructional designer kind of lens that you were, you were both speaking to a little bit, I, I wonder sometimes in talking to other peers and other institutions, if part of that is rooted in this instructional designers come from everywhere and do everything and mm -hmm. there's no specified certified pathway that defines the profession that vagueness can lead to some of those feelings of imposter syndrome yeah. yes i internalized a lot when i first started and that's, that's one of the characteristics i think is the internalization of quote-unquote failures i internalized a lot because and, and i realized now i was being naive it's a wide field. Instructional design has so many definitions and what you're doing, what I'm doing here at the nursing college is completely different than what I was doing as an instructional designer, same title, at the previous college, which was completely different than what the instructional designers were doing at uh, when I was a graduate student, when I was assisting them. You know, so three different institutions, three different sets of responsibilities. And if you leave higher ed and go out into military, DOD, and you go into the corporate world, you're going to have yet another completely different set of circumstances to mm -hmm. deal with. And so I, I've been in the field now for seven years. I finally can tell that younger part of me, like, it's okay. You were confused because there is no single definition as to what an instructional de designer is expected to do. There is no single yardstick to compare yourself to. It's really about the context you're in and working within that. And, and if you see success, then you'll know you're doing a good job. But you can't tell somebody who just graduated with an instructional design degree that because you're, you're, you're looking for the hard definition. You're looking for the real sure. hard real world examples mm -hmm. and they're just not quite there like, as you expected. Yeah. And it takes, I think, a lot of time to learn some of that implicit curriculum stuff, all those things that aren't necessarily part of what we learn even in a graduate degree program. Mm -hmm. It takes time to build confidence in the unwritten competencies that we bring to the table. And in one of the articles, they even mentioned how some with imposter syndrome even question going up to a PhD level or a doctoral level in their education just to help prove whether they they can do it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was interesting because, you know, you think so much of, or I do anyway, the, with doctoral doctorate level, you know, degrees, it's those people really want to focus on, you know, what their what their craft is. Mm -hmm. 
Um, not Aaron Craft, but <laughs> I'm my own craft. <laughs> craft what with their a K. craft is, but then after you know reading these uh, resources, you start to think, oh, but how many of for how many of them was it more that they needed to prove to themselves that they could accomplish that? Well, and I think too, we work, we live, we breathe this very scholarly, intellectual kind of universe. We're not producing widgets that we can evaluate with a stress test and, you know, quality control measures. It's much more abstract than that. And finding an appropriate level of benchmarks and methods for evaluation, they can be quite complicated. Some of these fields are highly specialized. It's, can you explain your job to your grandparents? Would they understand what success looks like? It's complicated. Yeah, I'm proud of my father because when I told him I'm, I was becoming an instructional designer and he asked, what is that? I told him a very simple definition, something to the effect of, oh, I'm assisting faculty with the building and implementation of their online courses. And I, I, that is a very specific and basic definition that has, uh, has evolved over the past several years that I've been in the field now. Uh, but he still remembers that, and I'm, I'm proud of him for it. But yeah, there, again, it's it's tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. Yeah, when I moved from being a teacher to an instructional designer, my kids had such a hard time if someone asked them, you know, what does your mom do? <laughs> they just reverted to, I don't know. <laughs> she does something at ASU with <laughs> with uh, faculty because they could no longer just say she's a teacher and yeah. everyone knows exactly what they do. <laughs> but, yep. So on the website, paulineroseclants.com, there's a quiz that can be taken to help identify whether you're suffering from imposter syndrome. Did you guys take the quiz? Were you I able? did. Yay. Yes. So what were your results? Is there anything that stuck out to you? or? Well, first, we should qualify that. It says near the bottom, if the total score is 40 or less, the respondent has few imposter characteristics. If the score is between 41 and 60, the respondent has moderate IP experiences. A score of 61 to 80 means the respondent frequently has imposter feelings. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> I scored a 43. So I'm at the very low end. I answered most of these as sometimes or rarely, but there were one or two that I did answer as very true. There was the, I rarely do a project or task as well as I'd like to do it. Mostly because I am a perfectionist and I would like to spend more time on things, but deadlines being what they are, you just, for me, I have to reach maybe 80%, 90% okay, and then mm -hmm. just cut it there. I was really intrigued by this inventory. I had not seen a sort of instrument that approached, you know, what are the characteristics? How do you, you know, think of them metacognitively? So this was actually a lot of fun for me. And I, my total score was 54. So... On this five-point rating scale, I did find myself right in the middle for a, a majority of the items, this whole idea of sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these challenges resonate with me, and sometimes not so much. I think much like Aaron, the ones that stuck out to me were the couple that I rated at either the highest or the lowest end. So, for example, um, there is a question about receiving promotion or recognition and how would you hesitate to tell others about it? In other words, mm -hmm. would you broadcast your own accomplishments? And I rank that as very true. And I thought about that, like what, it, what's behind that motivation? Well, what are don't, you just being humble? Well, I don't know. See, like there's, where's this intersection with just 
personality characteristics, Mm -hmm. you know, our introvert tendencies, our whatever, high achievement tendencies. Um, But it was an interesting exercise, again, to think about how all that maps into your sort of professional experience. Well, the fear there is being found out, I think, if I'm correct. Yes. They're saying that if you accept praise, then you're acknowledging that you actually um, deserve that recognition. But if you feel like an imposter, then deep down, you don't feel like you deserve that recognition. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So you're trying to trying to shy away from that. I scored, I guess, the highest out of all of us, and I scored an 84. Oh, my so God. And, and, I mean, it. it is true. I mean, there are a lot of things that I hold myself back on that maybe, you know, you probably don't realize it, but there are a lot of things that I hold myself back on based on just my internal feelings of, do I even know this? And I think for me, coming into higher ed and – you know, you hear me constantly, even on this podcast, I make connections, you know, to K-12 over and over and over again, because for me, that's my validation that I know stuff and that I and because I still struggle with the confidence in higher ed specifically. And that is one of the, you know, the effects is moving from one role to another and feeling, do you actually, can you actually accomplish this or do you deserve this, you know, where you're at now? type of thing. Going to conferences, presenting, things like that, I have a hard time or I struggle with feeling like I have to talk as an expert. You know, it's that word expert that I struggle with because I never feel like I'm a full expert. And people look to us as instructional designers to know things and know a lot of things. And I often feel, well, do I actually know that? Or do I know that, you know, enough? And obviously I do because I'm able to share the knowledge but at the same time, it's like internally I struggle. Like I don't want to sound like an expert because I don't know it all. It's interesting you bring up conferences too. And I'm going to thank, I gave Stephen Crawford a hard time on the last episode, but I'm going to give him praise on this episode <laughs> because when I first started here at the uh, Edson College of Nursing, I was told that there is an expectation, you know, not necessarily a strict expectation, mm-hmm. but there is an expectation that we're going to go out and we're going to present and we're going to reflect well on the college. And mm-hmm. I had never been, and I'll say saddled <laughs> in the lightest way possible with having to publicly present before. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling Stephen, I was like, well, I, I've considered it, but I just don't think that I have anything to say that people haven't already heard before. Mm-hmm. And he he looked at me and scoffed, you know, uh, like, no, that's not true at all. You, There's plenty that you can get out there. And yeah. just that little boost of confidence Mm-hmm. Suddenly, I I presented. I think every year. This will probably be the first year where I don't present because I'm having a baby. I'll be home happy. <laughs> um, so him just giving me that little boost of confidence got me out there, and then I realized, oh, I do have plenty to say. So, you know, having that that structure in place, that support structure in place, is is uh, very critical. I would agree that mentorship is very helpful. The first time I uh, presented at a conference. Uh, when I was in K-12, and this was a conference in Flagstaff, and it was a smaller conference, but it was my first one outside of, you know, our school district. I went with a very good friend of mine who I see more as a mentor, professional mentor. And on the way to the conference, we had a conversation. And, you know, um, at that time, I don't know if either of us knew about imposter syndrome, but we talked about being a minority in you know, any profession and 
um, some of the struggles that we deal with, you know, family-wise and professionally that make us feel like we have to push a little bit more. Um, and having that conversation made me feel so much more comfortable with I am who I am and I can achieve more than what I think I can. If that makes any, Absolutely. <laughs> any sense with, you know, going too deep into it. But just opening up and being able to talk about those feelings helps so much. And in I touched on this in the monologue with the article, The Imposter Phenomenon in Higher Education. Um, Parkman talks about the programs that are being implemented in some universities or some institutions to help with, you know, these types of um, characteristics with imposter syndrome. And I think that is extremely helpful for all faculty, staff, and students because it does affect mental health. It is a psychological, you know, issue. Well, yeah, if you're expected to spend 40 hours a week at work and you spend those 40 hours a week worrying if you're doing a good yeah. job yes. or mm -hmm. trying to deflect any attention, mm -hmm. that's a lot of stress. Well, and you say 40 hours a week, but so many tend to become um, workaholics right, and so work right. over those you the know, characteristics. Hours. Right. It was saying mm -hmm. that uh, imposter people with imposter syndrome characteristics will tend to put in more hours. Push it mm -hmm. harder. Yeah. Because yes. they, they need to come out on top in the end and they feel like they're starting from an inadequate position. Mm -hmm. So they need to overcompensate. Yeah. And end up burnt out. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a Celia. That's a such an important story and component here, as far as kind of the intersection uh, with groups of people who have you know certain challenges, environments, women, minorities, etc. There's certainly a lot of intersectionality there, mm -hmm. and um, the research is doing a great job at documenting and exploring those factors. Typically, women feel the imposter syndrome characteristics slightly more than men in certain demographics. But it, look, I had a 43, Jeanette had a 54, four, and Celia had an 84. 84. <laughs> wow, I mean, that's mm -hmm. we represent some of those findings right there. Well, and, and they did uh, document or summarize that in environments where there's um, a higher prevalence of a certain gender, those of the opposite gender tend to feel that imposter syndrome a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So I think about that in terms of, you know, the teaching environment where you have uh, an uneven ratio mm -hmm. of teachers to administrators, yeah. female to male, and how that, you know, plays out in that environment. Mm hmm. I think it's easy to brush this off as an issue of confidence and self-esteem. Agreed. And there's a mm -hmm. lot, there are much deeper components. As more and more research is done, I think if people can get comfortable with acknowledging it, that more research will show that it doesn't just affect, you know, specific groups. It can affect anyone, but just acknowledging it helps. All right. So what are some ways that you think people can combat the feelings of imposter syndrome? So there are, you know, this isn't something where just because they have these feelings, they're never going to be over, be able to overcome. So what do you think people can do to help with this? And what kind of support can be provided just within the workplace? I have a lot or, of I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about this one. Uh -oh. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> um, the, the first one that I'll touch on, which was not necessarily um, 
a significant component of the resources that we looked at, but I want to talk a little bit about social media. Mm-hmm. There's a performative, self-comparative aspect, and certainly even in some of our scholarly activities, there's an expectation, at least, or a norm that some forms of social media are prerequisite for career representation, advancement, being out there. Um, but I think this can be a big component of this imposter phenomenon. And we don't always acknowledge it. We don't always talk about it. But curating mindfully mm-hmm. the ways that one uses social media, realizing that the optics of seeing another person in their life may not be the whole story. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's much like other areas of social media. Yes, that is very true. Absolutely. I think the real question that I would ask here is, maybe we should start asking what is the meaning and the benefit of failure? And how can we help people feel comfortable to fail? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that as in it's okay to fail, keep failing. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think as we start to become aware of these issues and we want to make sure that nobody slips through the cracks and mm-hmm. has to suffer unnecessarily, especially the students. I mean, I, mm-hmm. imagine being young with all these stressors, yeah. right? It's just compounded at that point. I think there needs to be a shift towards changing the message. For example, I was reading an article about how the management at PBS at one meeting told their workers, if you don't fail, then I'm going to assume you're not doing your job or Mm -hmm. your new metric for success is to fail. I want new ideas. I want something risky, out of the box thinking. And that means that there is an expectation for failure, Mm -hmm. right? So the goal is success, but they also want you to move beyond the current comfort zones into new territory, which means, you know, trying new things. Some of them are going to fail. So I think we have to start looking at the, the, the fundamental definitions of what failure is and how can we bring a certain level of comfort. Like, it's okay that this didn't go as well as you thought. Mm-hmm. You'll get another chance. Or how can we bring in a mentor? I had Stephen Crawford to, to tap me on the sh- shoulder and say, hey, no, you're, you're fine. You go out there and you, you, you bring it and you'll be okay. And, you know, he was right. That was, that was the message I needed to hear at that moment. So you need to have those support structures in place, which according to the research that we've been looking at, apparently more and more there are structures in place to help uh, to, to accommodate those kind of difficult feelings. You picked out a couple of really important pieces there, Aaron. I love that. This idea that setting mindful, realistic goals and finding a way to find a mentor who can help you figure out mm. what mindful, mm-hmm. realistic goals are and to become more comfortable over time. It's a spectrum. It's gradual. That that evaluation part, that formative assessment part, that's a natural part of the process and not necessarily something to be feared. It's an opportunity to build that confidence, not just, oh, I failed at this one thing. It's what happens next after you fail the one thing. And to the point about mentors, I also think peer networks and remembering to affirm our peers. So Celia, mm-hmm. you spoke to a conference com- you know, conversation you had with yeah. a peer. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important, either locally with our own coworkers we see every day, or building our own personal learning networks where we communicate with other designers or other faculty members and to say, no, you're doing really important work. And if you need an objective voice, if you need somebody to bounce some ideas off of, being willing to take part in that process is really important too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Some of that team, you know, collaborativeness 
I think those types of things help with identifying strengths. And, you know, you're going to notice, of course, everybody's weakness, because that's always what happens. But it also helps identifying the strengths and what everyone brings to the table and working off of those that help that can help someone feel a little more confident. Psychology Today has an article that says you are not an imposter. And they have um, some ways to overcome a feeling the the symptoms of imposter syndrome. And one of the things is stop comparing. So make yourself or, you know, talk yourself out of comparing yourself to others and identify what makes you the person that you are and figure out or, you know, make connections to how you've gotten to where you're at. So don't compare yourself to others. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Don't compare yourselves to others. Don't compare yourself to others. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's very true in thinking that because just like you said in the beginning about me, you see me as a confident person, but really internally I struggle. You know, you don't know that the person that you're thinking or wanting to compare yourself to isn't struggling themselves. So I really like that. Um, that step for avoiding um or for overcoming imposter syndrome um well, you gotta have some faith in the people that hired you why would they look at your resume and listen to you speak at the interview and then say well they don't seem very strong but we're gonna hire them anyways you know <laughs> how often does that happen you know so sure. you, you gotta have some faith in the people around you that, that they chose you for a reason yeah that's so. true. That is very true. And I think just remembering that even if you are not as fortunate to find yourself in maybe that collaborative, mm -hmm. supportive environment, find ways to build it around you with a personal learning network or with opportunities that you can pursue outside your immediate work environment because we're not, unfortunately, all lucky enough to have that built in. All right. Well, thank you for those tips on overcoming um, imposter syndrome. Thank you also for opening up and sharing your experiences and thoughts about imposter syndrome. But before we close out, there's more. Let's now get into our hot topic. Hot Topics. Today's hot topic focuses on rubrics as a way to assess whether an e-learning tool is a good fit for our needs. In this article, it talks about creating a rubric for evaluating e-learning tools that you're wanting to bring in to your um, curriculum. In this article, they talk about bringing in rubrics for e-learning tools that evaluate the effectiveness of the tool for integration. They had eight categories that they looked at, functionality, accessibility, technical, mobile design, privacy, data protection and rights, social presence, teaching presence, and cognitive presence. What are your thoughts on this? Love me a good rubric. <laughs> I would agree. I was fascinated by this. I had never thought about, you know, evaluating uh, e-learning e tools with a rubric. You know, we use rubrics for so many other things, but anytime I've looked at a new tool, I don't think I've ever sat and gone through, you know, a rubric process. 
it is a good structural way to approach like if you're considering something new or you're on an innovation committee or you know you're trying to figure out how to solve a particular instructional problem with a new tool the process of just going through these categories and thinking about the global implications of a tool is a really valuable like metacognitive um you know process what i found particularly interesting about this is seeing the way that um the author or one or in seeing the way that the authors are putting this into practice in what they are calling an e-learning toolkit at their institution and so for example you know they might have a um a guide of um let's say problems that an instructor needs to solve like i need to communicate well with students i need to engage my audience mm -hmm. so each of those you know functional processes then have a list of tools and technologies that might work mm -hmm. to solve those problems and then when you drill down every single one of those tools has like basically a profile page that includes the score achieved within this rubric mm -hmm. and like what i have ever thought of sitting down and using a rubric like that to score microsoft word nope definitely would not so that i think is a really systematic way to think a little bit more comprehensively about the implications mm -hmm. for a tool. Yeah, when I used to sit on a technology uh, committee for a school district, and we would look at various technology that can be used, I don't think we ever really took it that deep. I think it was more on what features can this provide us. It, yeah. And we kind of stopped there. It wasn't, you know... I think we probably branched off and said, okay, the IT is dealing with, you know, whether this tool can handle or whether we can handle the tools you know system requirements right. and we looked more at like you know what features does it provide us and are they useful or is it too much is it easy to use but we never really that i can remember went so deep that's as deep as the rubric will really allow. good point because the sort of work group part of this is often siloed the the back-end technical requirements up against the instructional implementation versus rollout and you know training and all of these different pieces that sometimes are managed by completely different individuals or groups this really requires that people work together and mm -hmm. think through this more holistically and i've seen kind of comparative approaches in other innovation networks um, and even the the research behind this particular rubric, you know, they're very clear in saying that they've sort of collapsed a multitude of mod models into one. Um, but this is so clear. It's so familiar mm -hmm. to people who are, you know, educators. They've done a really good job, I think, making this a highly usable instrument. Yeah, I find especially the section on functionality within the article. They're, they're talking about things like scale, ease of use, tech support, help availability, and hypermediality, which is another way of saying diverse forms of representation. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of those concepts align rather neatly mm -hmm. with quality matters. If you're building yes, your course right. to quality matters standards, you're That's probably true. going to successfully meet 
these criteria mm-hmm. already. Yeah, you're talking about how there's overlap with other models of evaluation. Mm-hmm. So after reading this article, I had actually brought the question to our Instructional Technology Advisory Committee that I sit on to ask others and bring up the conversation of how is everyone assessing the learning tools that they're bringing into the you know various colleges across ASU. And it's one that we still need to continue conversation on. It was just, you know, to bring it up. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing how the rest of the university evaluates their tools. Well, I can see the tech side mm-hmm. of the university, uh, the IT teams. Well, yeah, they definitely have something. Well, you know, they need to look at things like the integration with the mm-hmm. learning management system. Um, however, it was the section on social presence, mm-hmm. teaching presence, cognitive presence that I think that's where the instructional designer might want to go ahead and, and, and take a look and do their own testing with those aspects. By the way, th- that's the community of inquiry model. Those are the three aspects of the community of inquiry model that, if appropriately addressed, create a more successful learning environment, especially for online classes. So I was really excited to see that this rubric included the community of inquiry model All right. Well, thank you for that conversation on rubrics for evaluating e-learning tools in higher education. I hope that helps others to think about how they're evaluating their e-learning tools and maybe bring about some positive um, things in your own teams. All right. Let's continue this conversation on Twitter. Feel free to tweet us with your feelings about imposter syndrome or Feel free to tweet us about the ways you're assessing your e-learning tools and how you are implementing maybe rubrics or what your system is. We love hearing from our listeners. I'd like to thank the ever so wonderful podcast team, Jeanette, and our participant and producer, Aaron. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. We read an article called A Rubric for Evaluating E-Learning Tools that's written by Lauren Ansi and Gavin Watson. In this article, sorry. <laughs> yes, we did. I was trying to transition my brain. Mm-hmm.